Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Chris Red. He would ask me for money, and I'm like, dog, I'm like $2 away from being out here with your ass. <laughs> that and more. But before that... You know, going to the post office is so old school, quote, unquote, old school. It's such a hassle taking trips there. That's why over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com to get postage right from their desks whenever they need it, 24 hours a day. Stamps.com can turn your computer and printer into a virtual post office. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Stamps.com is the better way to do your mailing and shipping. It's easy to use, so convenient, lets you focus your time where you want on growing your business instead of on, you know, time-consuming trips to the post office. No wonder 2.6 billion dollars in postage was printed just last year alone using stamps.com. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now, you can sign up for stamps.com. Use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd. I've got a frog in my frog. <laughs> they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Stetsasonic. 
behind me now as remixed by Dimitri from Paris. Oh my goodness, I can't believe how knocked out I am this week by the death of Prince. Oh my goodness, uh, we've just so recently lost David Bowie as well. Both of these people did so much to make kids especially feel like it's okay to be different. It's okay to like express the weirdness in you, to own it, to let it shine even. And so in honor of both Bowie and Prince, we mourn, but let us also strive to continue to just let go of conformity and uh, embrace more and more being our own creations. Now, this is a very special episode. We're calling it New Kids because all three storytellers today were virgins to true storytelling before sharing these stories on stage at risk shows. Uh, you can hear the the newness. You can hear the nervousness. You can hear the raw realness coming through in these three stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Jacob Penrod. He shared a story at our DC show. We were recently in DC. He is only 18 years old and shared this story. You're going to hear in a little bit. His parents were there. It was quite remarkable to see someone so young uh, stand up in such a powerful way. I should add also that anyone who has had a problem with self-harm, with self-injury, might find that second story a bit of a trigger, so just be warned about that. But before we hear from Jacob, we're going to hear something remarkable from Chris Red. Chris is a stand-up comedian who shared this story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles, the last L.A. show we had. Chris is very new on the scene, but the moment you hear him, you'll think, okay, this guy's going places. You can find him on Twitter at Red Said It. That's R-E-D-D Said It. And here's Chris Red now with a story we call Let's Connect. What's up? What's up, people that aren't here that's listening? You don't have to say anything. <laughs> this theme of the night is passion. It's my first storytelling show, so uh, bear with all the shit you about to hear. <laughs> I've had passion all my life. Um, I've always had passion following my dreams. I, I, I never wanted to be told what to do, and um, I always wanted to do what I want. And in the black community, you don't do that often. So it was uh, it drove me a lot. I got that from my parents. They are from the South, Mississippi. They grew up there with little to nothing. They studied hard, got degrees, moved us up to the suburbs. So we were able to have better opportunities. We didn't have a lot of talking and not a lot of dialogue growing up. And my mom would always say, we are not friends. I'm your mama. So when I would go to like, like a white friend's house and they were like, my mom's my best friend. I'm like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> you know? But they showed me through actions, man, all the time. My mom had a job. She made more money than my pops. My pops had a job. Knew his wife made more money, loved her anyway, was never insecure about it, most confident man I've ever known. And it was just a powerful thing. It was... It was everything we fight for now. Feminism, all that shit was in my house. And it was a black family, so it was like the only family I knew. And it was a great opportunity to see that. They only knew going to school, getting degrees. At a tender age of 10 years old, I wanted to be a gangster rapper. <laughs> That's what I wanted to be. I knew in my heart I was a thug. That is all I knew. 
and I was writing raps every day for hours, and I was 10 years old, so I was writing shit that was true to me, like killing Barney. Like, I killed Barney so many times in my raps, like so many times. I remember my first line I was geeked about. I went to school, showed everybody, got detention for it. It was crazy. And it went like this. It was like, uh, who's on the mic next? You guess it's blood red, jumping on my mama's bed with Barney severed head. Like I, I was sick. I was a sick child. I was a very sick child. And I drew pictures and Barney was like, hang on. This is insane. But I loved it. And, and you know, you would guess my, my mom who worked hard and my daddy worked hard to get there, hated the fact I rapped, but I didn't care. You know, so we had a riff for a long time growing up. I, was, I would do everything to show people how hard I was. I ran with gangs, robbed, steal. I did really shitty things to people. I was a very self-involved, self-absorbed person. But I was focused on rap every day. I would rap all the fucking time. I would annoy the shit out of my friends every conversation. If I heard a beat, I'm rapping, like, immediately. It didn't matter what it was. I would call my friends while they're at work. Yo, yo, what's up, dog? You busy? Yeah, because I'm... Um, because I'm at my job. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. I'm at my job making this dope-ass rap, cuz let me, let me spit it for you. I can't hear it on the phone, dog. I can't hear you on the phone. It didn't matter what he said. I was already rapping. <laughs> I was killing it. I was, had the beat going. He couldn't hear shit. It didn't matter. I didn't value my friend's time. It was all about me. That was my worldview then, man. It was all about rap. If it got in the way of rap, I missed birthday parties, birthdays, weddings, everything, man, like family times, because I, I needed to make it in rap. If it wasn't rap, it wasn't anything, you know? Comedy was the furthest thing away from my mind. Like, I would use comedy as a manipulative tool to get things I wanted. Like, I would go, I would have jobs, and I would lose jobs all the time. I was very good at losing jobs, and I would <laughs> go to this local McDonald's all the time. Where I used to work, and this manager had a little crush on me, so I would go up there, and I would just, you know, crack jokes for hours, so they gave me free food. And I would get to know everybody, cracking jokes to the point where she didn't have to be there. I would just be getting free food all the time, employee discounts. I ain't lift them out, you know? <laughs> Like, I was good at doing it. I could work people with the comedy. It was, but it, ne it never dawned on me that it was a thing I could do. It was just like, I'll make a laugh real quick and I'm going to get this thing, you know? <laughs> I was a shitty person. Uh, I was. At 24, 14 years later, I had to break up with rap. I, and it was devastating to me because I, I didn't know life outside of this. This is all I did for hours on end. When I was supposed to go to bed, I would be up to 3 o'clock in the morning writing raps. This is all I knew. And I, and I got to a point where it's like, you, am I going to keep being broke the rest of my life? I'm negative in my account, thousands of dollars. I don't have anything but like a thousand songs that no one's listening to. <laughs> and it, it killed me. You know, and I, know, I didn't know what to do, so I, I enrolled in school just to try to find purpose, like fill a hole, fill this void that I had. And I, and our counselor was like, hey, do you want to host this variety show? Because she heard me cracking jokes and shit, and I was like, what does it pay? She's like, $50. I was like, well, weed doesn't pay for itself, so yeah. <laughs> I didn't know shit about hosting anything, you know? But it came down to the variety show, and uh, they paid me 50 bucks up top, so I was like, cool, this is great. I already got the $50, and I don't care what happens after this. <laughs> but I got on stage, and I cracked a couple jokes about the staff, and they liked it. And it was cool, and I roasted some people, because that's all I knew comedy was, making fun of people, you know, because I was insecure at the time, you know, myself, so I just made fun of other people. That's just what it was. But there was one moment that I knew comedy was supposed to be the thing I do. And it was this dude named Jason who did a nunchuck routine. Now, Jason was awful at nunchucks. But I don't think he knew how bad he was. Because he came up there very confident. They were like, Jason, nunchucks. And he came out and he bowed. He had this key on and shit. He was ready. And then he, his whole routine was like, fucking awful <laughs> and I came out right after he was done and I was like give it up for Jason the only ninja that could beat your ass and his own ass at the same damn time <laughs> 300 people laughed like y'all laughed and it was the first time I ever connected with a room full of that many people before and it was electric man the feeling was incredible I was so fucking moved I was like I know you can feel this way about something like how do I get this again I didn't know how, so I just smoked weed and just forgot about it. 
be very honest. As I was smoking weed, uh, I, I turned on the TV a couple weeks later, and um, a commercial for Second City came on. And it had all these guys that I've been watching, Tina Fey, Tim Meadows, not enough black people, though, but it was like a lot of people I knew. And I was like, man, okay, maybe I can go there because college ain't shit. I don't like college. But, like, I could take these classes. This would be fun, you know? So I, I, uh, I went and I checked out a class, but I had to get a job first. I had, I had 49 jobs, so my 50th job before I quit jobs forever was risk management insurance. Like, I talked my way in. I didn't have a degree at all. I just talked my way in. I had him laughing and shit, you know? And then he was like, well, you have to get your license. I was like, give me your book. I'll read it, learn it, do it. He gave me this thick-ass book. I was like, all this book? <laughs> this is a big book. But I did it. You know, I, I studied. I got the license. And it was the most boring fucking job I've ever had in my life. I hated it. But after like my 9 to 5, I would walk five blocks because I, I was broke. And I, and I didn't want to pay for the train or cabs. So I would just walk five blocks to Second City. And I would go to class. And improv was like everything rap wasn't. It was about listening to people being vulnerable, like telling the truth. I was rapping about money I didn't have. You know, I was rapping about cars I ain't drive. You know, but improv was all about like being very real. Well, truthfully, the first fucking class is about walking and being a treat, but like <laughs> the theory of improv is what moved me and I was instantly connected like shit, I need to do this. So every day I would walk and do that and I would go to open mics and I would try out jokes in this full suit and I would fucking walk the city of Chicago and I was like, I gotta do this. So I had moved back in with my parents and I was like, look, for the 15th time, and I was like, look, I know we got some beef, but please, I, I got a plan. Like, I, I wanna go do comedy. And my mom's all of a sudden like, oh, another fucking dream. Why don't you just do something real? You know, because I had been bullshit my whole life. And I was like, no, I think this is the thing, no, I think this is the thing. My dad was like, all right, cool. You can, you can sleep on the couch and shit. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, cool. So I traveled every day for four hours from the suburbs to the city. And I would sit in, in, in uh, the second city lobby, use their free Wi-Fi. And I would get a burrito bowl, chop it up into threes. And that would be my dinner for the whole day. And I did that for years. I would just write all day until my classes were there, and I would go out and do open mics. And I did that every day, religiously, right? And I quit my job, because that job fucking sucked. And <laughs> I quit it. I saved all that money, and I used it every bit I could to just carry me over. And I was like, look, I'm going to give three years to this. I'm going to go hard. And if at three years I'm not doing it, I'm going to go get a boring-ass job and just be a regular fucking person, I guess. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing if that's what you do. <laughs> But to me, I just felt, I always felt I was supposed to do something else because I'm not good at regular things. <laughs> Once I started really getting into improv, it changed my whole worldview. And I stopped just hearing people and I started listening. And I started actually connecting with people that I would see every day. I can't walk past somebody every day and not speak to them. So I would see this guy named David. He would be at this Walgreens at the corner of North and Wells. North and Wells is in a place called Old Town on the north side of Chicago. And it's, I th always thought it was called Old Town because it's like nothing but old white people can afford to live here. <laughs> but that's what it was called. And it was a cross section. It was Second City. Historic Second City was right there. And a fucking Walgreens right there. And a bunch of restaurants. It was a nice, nice area. And David would be sitting there. He's this old white guy, rocker hair, long right down to his chest. And he would wear these either a Sixers headband or a fucking bandana. And he would always have a joke on his sign. And I would always give him shit, because I'm like, how are you funny and hungry? <laughs> and he was like, aren't you an aspiring comedian? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, then you know the answer to that shit. <laughs> David was fucking funny. He was funny, man. I can't remember all the signs he had, but there was one sign that made me stop that I will never forget. It was the first day I met him. He was holding his sign up, and the sign said, this is a regular sign. Just kidding. I'm hungry. Please help. <laughs> and I cracked up. You know, and he was, and I saw, so I got to know him. He's from Texas. Uh, he went to the war for a little bit. He never specified what war he went to, but he always talked enough about it to know it was real. And uh, then he got into drugs for a little while, and he's just been trying to survive ever since. And so every time I had a little money, because he was sober, and you could always tell when people are sober like that, so... Uh, I would give him money as, as, as much as I could. At, when I met him, I didn't have anything but $2 on me. I was negative like $1,000 in my account. I had nothing. He would ask me for money, and I'm like, dog, I'm like $2 away from being out here with your ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and he would laugh hard like, yo, them, those, uh, those classes are working. Right? And you keep that up, all right? But don't, don't end up out here. This is my gig. I haven't seen him in a while, but the last time I saw him, uh, he said something that really moved me. It was in an unfortunate situation. So he got into an altercation with this couple, this very rich couple that was just like, because on Friday nights, Old Town turns into like the socialite event for white couples. It's just like everybody's out spending tons of money and they're very fancy, a little drunk, so they're a little belligerent. And this guy kicked over his stuff. And David was mad. I was walking out this Walgreens. I was in between shows at the time because I had moved up Second City a little bit and I started performing there and I was going in for a Red Bull. This is not a plug. This is just what I fucking drink all the time. <laughs> Killing myself early. And I walked outside and I saw David in a huff. I'm like, yo, David, what's going on? He's like, people think they can walk all over me, Chris. They think they can walk all over me. I'm like, I didn't know who he was talking about. And I saw this couple. He's like, well, and the man said, well, you should move your shit. Move your shit. This is a public place. It's not your fucking hotel. That's why I kicked your shit. Now kick it again. And I got very pissed and I wanted to choke him out. But I was black in a white neighborhood in Chicago. So... <laughs> And if one thing you learn in Chicago, old white people call police very quickly. And they show up even quicker. But I did yell. I was like, yo, yo, fuck you, man. This is a human being, dude. You see everything that he has? He has nothing. Everything he has is right here. And you feel big doing this? And then David pushed me out the way because he was very strong. And I didn't know he was strong. I didn't know he was that strong. He just pushed me. I was like, oh, you were in the war. Okay. And David was like, no, I got this. You think you're good? You think you can just push me like this? You are six choices away from being everybody you judge. You are six choices away from being the people you judge, man. That has never left my heart ever. Like, I approach life with that in my mind all the time. And um, I never seen David after that. But, I, you know, I always hope he's doing well. And I'm going to Chicago soon, so I hope I see him. There's another guy... Willie, he was a crackhead, and uh, we called him Well Street Willie. He was always walking around. He had his jive walk. He would always be walking around. Just, he wore this black Kango hat. You know, sometimes he would have no shirt on. That's when you knew he was hot. Cause it'd be twenty degrees. He's just walking with no shirt on, nipples hard as shit. <laughs> you know? I met him at a convenience store, man. He would always come in there, and the guys would hate him. They, they, they got, the guys owning the convenience store would just text and just be texting and shit like that. And, and he, he would come in like, hey, then, hey, hey, give me, give me one of them phones, boy. Give me one of them phones. <laughs> and the owner was like, no, you need money for this phone. You don't have money? Bye-bye. Oh, I got, okay. Well, when I'm going to get some money, and then I'm going to come back in here, and I'm going to be like, got money? Hello. <laughs> Willie was one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Effortlessly funny, man. He's like, I need some money for juice, man. And then I gave him a couple dollars for juice. He was like, look at my brother right here. My young brother giving me some juice money. You gonna, you gonna be somebody, boy. You gonna be somebody. And then Willie bought a case of beer and some cigarettes for my money. He was a hustler, man, down to the core. I would see him all the time, would talk with him, hear stories. He was from Chicago. He, he, he had been through things I'd never seen before. But I, I would never give him money when he was high. And one time he came to me when he was high. And I was mad at him, man. And he, I was like, he was like, hey, come on. I know, man. I messed up. All right, I know I'm weak, man. Don't you ever get weak, Chris? Oh, no, you strong. You strong. But just get, come on, give me some money, man. I was in the war. And I was like, Willie, what war were you in? <laughs> We've never talked about a war, Willie. The war on drugs, nigga, and I lost. <laughs> I couldn't help but laugh just like y'all did for like 10 minutes. I was cracking up. Because like that was some dope wordplay, son. <laughs> for a crackhead. That was crazy. <laughs> so I gave him a little bit of money for food, you know. And he was like, thank you. You know what? Every day you walk up and you talk to me. And I see you out here, you talk to people. People walk by me every day like I'm just a tree or something on the, in the ground. And they don't pay attention. They don't connect. And that's what's going to make you different. That's what's going to make you different. You stay you, Chris, all right? You stay you. I'm like, I'm going to stay me, Willie. You stay off those damn drugs. Like, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. After the day, I'm done. 
I feel all my emotions. I don't like it. <laughs> and then his shirtless ass picked up a TV. I'm like, how you don't have a shirt, but you have a TV? Like, where you get that TV from, Willie? He's like, hey, Chris, business is business. That is not an answer. That's not an answer. I learned so much from those people, but what not to be. Willie had a lot of characteristics that, you know, I don't want. But he was fearless. He was funny. He said what he felt. And that is something I took from him. You can always take something from people that you know, man. And so five years later, with more Chipotle bowls than I should have ever eaten in my life, thousands of shows, I moved out to L.A., did a couple movies. The last movie I did called Fat Camp. <laughs> uh, I connected with everybody on that set, man. Every day I would talk to everybody. It was like a family. To the point where we literally talk every day now. One of the PAs came up to me at the rap party and he was like, man, every day as a lead actor you would come up, you would greet everybody, and then at the end of the day you would say bye to everybody. And no actor does that ever. You don't understand how much that changes us and that energy, how much we appreciate that. And it was like, I had to say, man, like that's just who I've become and what I've learned from dealing with these people along the way. And I'm just you know, being myself. I feel like we're all pieces of this puzzle and nobody should be celebrated, even though the media and society celebrates one over the other. But you can't fucking make a movie without the camera guy. <laughs> Lord knows I wouldn't be on time without the PAs. Everybody means something, you know, and you got to connect. Plus, I can't see somebody every day and not know. I got to know who the fuck I'm around, son, you know, and you got to connect. Somebody asked me, like, when will I know when it's enough? You know, when will I know when I'm done? And it reminds me of something that uh, one of my coworkers at Olive Garden said to me, this guy Julio, he'd been working there for 35 years. And that's what I said. <laughs> Whoa. And we were sitting there talking, I just had to fucking ask this man. I was like, yo, Julio, man, you should have owned like 50 Olive Gardens by now. <laughs> like, why are you still here, man? Like, why? And he looked at me and he was like, you know, you want to be a big movie star, man. You want to do a lot of big things, and that's phenomenal, and I wish that for you. But for me, happiness wasn't that hard to get. If you ever work too hard for your happiness, stop, because you probably missed that shit two decisions back. <laughs> Connect with the people that you know along the way. Thank you, guys. So as Kevin said, I'm in high school, I'm 18. Two years ago, when I was 16, I was a completely different person than who I am now, which for high schoolers is a pretty normal thing. You know, you go through as a freshman, and you're like, I'm gonna stay this way forever. And then you get as a senior, like, I can't believe who I was as a freshman. <laughs> but for me, I think it was particularly different. When I was a sophomore, I wanted to be a pastor, and I was all in. I was going to go to college and study theology and then start up a church in Las Vegas to rescue people out of the slave trade, um, which is an admirable goal, and there's nothing wrong with that, except for me, I was doing it because I hated myself. Growing up, my parents and I went to church every week, and a lot of the churches we went to were incredibly conservative, and I was taught from a really early age that there's sin, and then there's being gay. You can sin, and that's okay, and Jesus will love you, but you can't really be gay. And that profoundly affected me, because in fourth grade, uh, when I was 10, I knew that I was gay. And it was really hard for me, because I wanted to be a good Christian, but I was gay. So that's when I made up my mind to be a pastor, because you can't be gay and be a pastor in my mind. Being a pastor was the first thing from being gay. So when I was in sixth grade, I was 12. My dad was very involved in Boy Scouts, as was I, and he led up a program called God and Country. 
it's kind of like a merit badge sort of thing. Um, you go through, you do all these requirements, you answer all these questions about your faith, and at the end, you have to do a service project. So my dad decided that our service project was to help set up our church for an Easter sunrise service. So because it was really early, he invited everyone that was in the program over to our house and spend the night. That way, there's only one kind of car to get there. So four other guys spent the night at our house, and I was really excited because I didn't have a whole lot of friends at the time. So this was most people that had ever slept over at my house at once. So one of my friends was there. He was my age. He was also 12. His name was James. Um, there are two other guys who were, I think, 13 at the time. And then there was Ben. And Ben was uh, 17, I think, at the time. He wasn't super anything special. He didn't look anything special. He was kind of short, but he had some of the biggest personality features of anyone I've ever met. Uh, he always had to outdo everyone else. Since it was Boy Scouts, if you had a knife, he had a longer and sharper knife. Or if you could tie a knot, he could tie it faster, that sort of thing. So our night starts off pretty innocently. As 12-year-old boys do, it started being all truth or dare and, oh, who do you like, <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and I was just enjoying having all these people over. And then Ben starts joining in, and he starts joining in pretty much the same as everyone else. But then he starts getting a little bit more personal, and you know, he asks questions like, oh, does anyone here have pubic hair yet, sort of thing? <laughs> Which is a little bit weird to me. I was a little bit uncomfortable. My heart starts racing a little bit faster. I knew I liked guys at that point, but it was, it was weird, and it didn't seem quite right to me. So he started asking more personal questions, and I kind of tried to step back. Um, but as you pointed out, with everyone talking, no one was going to sleep soon, and I just wanted to impress him. So I went along with what he said, and I joined in, and then his questions got more and more personal, and it no longer seemed like a fun thing. It seemed kind of scary and dirty, and he started asking us more and more personal questions, like uh, how big our dicks were, and then he started asking if we were cut or uncut, and then he asked to see it, and then he told us to touch ourselves and touch other people, and in my mind, I don't understand what's going on, and I know I should like this, I know that I like guys, but this just doesn't seem right to me, and I want to say no, but I really want to impress him, and I'm really scared and really terrified, and my mind's not processing all of this that's going on, and then he asked us to touch each other and to touch him, and then he asked my friend James to suck his dick, and then James just said no. <laughs> and when James said no, it was kind of like a spell was broken. After that, everyone kind of went to bed, and I was just left on my bed alone, staring at the ceiling, trying to process what had happened, but I didn't, I didn't understand. The next morning, we woke up, and we set up for the Easter service, and no one talked about what had happened. And that's when I learned that I couldn't ever talk about my feelings. I couldn't talk about being gay. Any possibility there was of me being gay and a pastor and somehow working them together was gone. It was this horrible, dirty thing. A couple years later, I started high school. I confided in a few of my friends that I had these feelings for guys, but I told them that it was okay because it was only part of me and I could fight it. I kind of described it like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of situation. So on one half of me, there's this pure straight person who wants to respect women and date them. And then on the other side of me is the gay part. And that's the part that I hate, but I can just control that part and stay straight. Obviously, that does not work. <laughs> um, it just got worse and worse, and I started hating myself because I couldn't control it, and it seemed like it was controlling me. So one night... I'm sitting at the edge of my bed, and there's a knife in my hand, and I just, I just don't know what to do. I'm in tears, I feel filthy, I feel dirty, I feel like I can never get rid of this part of me that's gay. So I start to cut my thigh, and I, I think that that will get rid of it, that will make me straight. As the blood drips down, I can imagine the gay leaving my body, and as I'm finished, I feel the sense of relief that this must have worked. But then it came back. It became a nightly thing for me, and I would hate myself after I did it, and I wanted it to work again, to feel that sense of relief right afterwards, but every time that relief got less and less. Eventually I told one of my friends, I think because I desperately wanted to stop, but I didn't know how. Thankfully, he told a teacher at our school, who then told the nurse, 
who then had to tell my parents. He told me that this was going to happen, and I knew that I needed to tell my parents first. Not so that I could lie to them, but because I knew it would break their heart if anyone else told them. So I got ready for school one morning, and I'm sitting at the edge of the stairs, in tears. My mom comes over and sits down next to me. And all I'm able to choke out is that I'm sorry. She comforts me and hugs me and asks me to explain to her. And I'm too ashamed, and I look at my knees, and I just say, Mom, I'm, I'm cutting myself. She starts crying, and through tears, she promises me that she's going to get me help. And they do. My parents send me to a therapist, and he's a really nice guy. He's great, but I don't want to tell him that I'm gay. I still haven't really accepted it at this point. But one day we had talked about everything else and nothing else could get done. And it just comes out of me. I tell him that sometimes I have feelings for guys. And instead of being disgusted or revolted like I assumed he would be, he just said, okay. Instead of denying those thoughts, just let them be. He said, don't think of them as good or bad. Just let them be and see where they take you. And this was a terrifying thing to me. It was new and it felt dirty. It felt wrong. I had been telling myself I wasn't gay or that you couldn't be gay for years, but I did try it. And it scared me and then I stopped. But then I tried it again. And that time I could actually imagine myself being happy. But it still scared me, so I stopped it again. But then I tried it again. And again, and I could see myself being happy with a guy. Not in a gross or dirty or sexual way even, but, but as those thoughts started coming back, I also started remembering what had happened that night with Ben. I got really angry at him, and it seemed that all of this was his fault, and that if he didn't do it, that none of this would have happened. And So I friended him on Facebook. <laughs> I, uh, I got to see that he's in college, that he's in the military, and I realized that if I wanted to, I totally could destroy his life. That all it would take was one message to one of his commanding officers, and it would all be over for him. So I started typing to him, and I didn't exactly know what I was going to say, but my thoughts just went out. And by the time I pressed send, this is what I said. Ben. You probably don't remember, but when we were setting up for the Easter service for the God and Country program, I was in sixth grade, and I'm pretty sure you were in tenth. You took advantage of me and a few other guys. I really struggled about sending you this message and what I wanted to say. Honestly, I wanted to yell at you and blame you for everything. I wanted to tell your parents and mine and see you get what you so rightfully deserve. It has burned me up to see that because while I suffer because of this, you've lived a happy and a successful life. It has caused me nothing but grief and heartache and self-loathing and questions. And I see sixth graders now and I cannot imagine doing to them what you did to me. That abuse has scarred me and now I'm in therapy because of a result of it. But instead I choose to forgive you. Not because it's easy or because I want you to owe me something. I choose to forgive you because I deserve it. I've spent too long in the past. I'm not letting you have that control over me anymore. And as I pressed send that night, I felt this relief leave me. I could breathe again. I wish I could say that things were automatically better, but that's not how life works. It took a lot of fighting and a lot of tears, but right now I'm in a good place. I have an amazing boyfriend right now. Thank you. My parents, who are actually here tonight um, to support me, It's a really big step for them. Um, they've met my boyfriend, they really like my boyfriend, and I'm in a really good place. But I think more than anything, the best part of me right now is that I can be who I am and love who I am with no regrets. Thank you.
This is Spoon behind me now, and we just heard from Jacob Penrod, like I said, 18 years old, in an enormous theater at the Howard Theater in in D.C. with his parents in the audience and all. That was really something to see. Before that, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And if you enjoyed Chris Red's story, the first story on the episode, that was at our Los Angeles show. I want all our Los Angeles fans to know that we are moving. We're moving to the Bootleg Theater starting on June 18th. The Bootleg is on Beverly Boulevard. Now, we'll have one more show at the Nerdist Showroom in May, but I just wanted to give everyone a heads up that we'll be moving in June. Another announcement is that we have finally nailed down our next Toronto date. We are in Toronto on August 5th. Now, the theme for that is disaster. Those could be very, very funny stories or not. You can pitch us. uh, You go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. That goes for everyone in Toronto, but it also goes for everyone listening. We're always looking at story submissions from folks all around the world, even if we're not coming to visit your town soon. So go to the submissions page and pitch us. Now, our last story today comes from our last show we did in Philadelphia. There was a loud fan in the the room. It's the kind of thing that happens a lot when you're touring, but it doesn't make any damn difference because you can hear the story just fine and dandy. Here is Kate Fruman with a story we call Roomies. I'm 17, I'm about to leave home for freshman year at York College, and I'm scared. When I was a teenager, I was very awkward, very shy. My grades were very average, I could have cared less about school. And I was just very anxious about failing, about being alone and disappointing myself and my family. So, I moved in on a hot, late August day in the summer, and I'm you know, I'm kind of getting excited because I'm like, wonder, you know, what my roommate's going to be like. This was pre-Facebook, so they had given us each other's numbers, and I had called my roommate, Nicole, and, you know, she hadn't called me back. So I was hoping, in, like, in a roommate, I was like, I hope we just, she's someone easygoing, I hope she's clean, and I hope it's someone who could possibly be a friend. So we get there, we unpack, and... I look over, she had already moved her stuff in, but she was nowhere to be seen. So I look, and there's a very clear difference on either side of the room. I very much had had a Target dorm room. It was girly, bright purple, and I had photos everywhere. And I look over, and it's, the other side is kind of like drab, no photos. There's clutter and clothes everywhere. And she hadn't shown up until the very next day. Um, so she had, you know, come in and saying, hi, very bubbly, uh, hi, I'm Nicole, I'm your roommate, I'm bipolar, is basically how our first conversation went. I, no judgment, she was very nice, we actually got along really well. I was like, okay, I can see this working. Um, we had also, you know, started to go out and make other friends as well. So she kind of pulled this disappearing act throughout, you know, the first few weeks. Um, I asked her once, you know, where were you? And she said, I just needed a break. So I knew, I just didn't ask her anymore after that. Um, she had stopped going to class. Um, and when she was in our room, she would kind of make our room like a cave. She would just sleep all day. She would close the curtains, you know, close the door. 
and our room had started to have this odor after the first few weeks. It was like this rancid locker room with fish. And I remember at one point I had tried like covering it up. I had a bath and body spray. It was like a peach spray, um, but it didn't work very well. It just smelled like a rancid locker room with fish and peach. So at one point I had noticed there were cups under her bed. And I had, I had looked and it was like containers of food that should have been refrigerated. And it was cups of like old moldy mac and cheese. And so, you know, at that point she had also stopped showering. You could just tell like based on appearance. And I, I kind of, I was you know, a little uncomfortable because your dorm room is your home away from home at college. And I just, you know, we were leaving for Thanksgiving break one day and she had said she hadn't done her laundry since we've been there in August and it was November already. So I was like, okay, that's it. I, I just went out. I can't do this anymore. And so we came back from break and I'm thinking of a way to kind of break this to her. I didn't want to make someone with bipolar disorder feel worse about themselves. So I'm sitting at my computer, you know, on AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger, and in comes our next door neighbor, Amanda. And I had met her a few times in passing. We had had about maybe four conversations. We had both bonded. We had like the same Incubus poster and we both had Jim Morrison posters up. So she was very nice, like six foot tall, blonde, very outgoing, loud, and very funny. And she just comes in, she's, you know, yelling. She's bitching about her roommate. Um, just, I don't remember what she was yelling about. I don't think I cared, but I just saw her as a way out at that moment. I was like, okay, that's my new roommate. And so I had, you know, kind of put it in her ear that I wasn't getting along with my roommate. And she was like, okay, let's do it. We're moving in together. And I just go, I hear them like yelling. It's like screaming, yelling. And, you know, from there it was, it was set. Like that was my new roommate. So I had broken it to Nicole, the newest to Nicole. And she was actually okay with it because she had found a single dorm room and she was happy about it. Um, so Amanda moves in to my dorm room and it's you know what I hoped for. She, we had gotten along. She had kind of gotten along with my friends, like we were all hanging out together, and we had you know gone to parties together. And it was she was clean. It was an ideal rooming situation. About three weeks in, we were walking to dinner, walking with some of our friends in the dorm room. And this guy, this kid, who no one, none of us knew, comes walking you know, in front of us in the dorm, and Amanda just hawks this big loogie on the back of his jacket. And he turns around, and I thought he was gonna kill her, just the look on his face. And he starts like running after her, chasing her, and she's running, like laughing. And so we're all, she left us there, kind of like looking at each other, mouths open. We were like, what just, what just happened? Why did she do that? And we kind of just brushed it off as a weird incident. And then another week or two later, she had gone, flown home to New York for the weekend. It was a Sunday, and I had gone out to breakfast. I'd come back, and I, my answering machine was full. We had a landline. And I am thinking, first thought was, oh my god, who died? So I press play, and during this weekend, so Amanda had gone home during this huge snowstorm. Like, the roads had closed down, and I, somehow her plane had landed. So the first message is, where are you? I need you to pick me up. The buses aren't running. So I'm thinking, okay, I don't have a car and the roads are closed, so sorry, you're out of luck. Um, second one, hey, asshole, I know you're there. Pick up. Where are you? So I'm like, okay, now I'm definitely not picking you up. Delete. Third message, you fucking cunt. Where are you? I hope you fucking die. So then delete. Next one, you fucking cunt. That's it. Delete. And then the next one, they get progressively worse where it's just incoherent screaming. And I couldn't listen to the rest. I was just like so shaken up. Like I had tried to think back, like was there something that had happened like that we had, but we had gotten along really well. So I was just really confused. And at that point I was just, I started getting angry that someone would talk to me like that, like especially a friend. And a few hours later, um, she comes into the dorm and she is, has this huge alligator creepy grin on her face. And she's like, hi, how was your weekend? Like nothing had happened. And I was just sitting there, I was like, what's going on? And I kind of, I, you know, surprised myself. I was like, don't ever talk to me like that again. I was just so pissed. And I didn't talk to her for the next two weeks. And you can only ignore someone that you share a bunk bed with for so long before you have to talk to them again. And I am not one to hold a grudge. So, you know, we started talking again and getting along. And then a few days later, I had had a guest over. And Amanda kept this walking stick. 
which was really just a long branch that she had found outside. She had kept it in the corner of our room. And she was like very proud of this walking stick. And my friend had accidentally stepped on it and she pulled the same thing. Like in person, she just started going off on her, like screaming at her. And to do it to me is one thing, but to do it to someone you don't know over a branch was just ridiculous to me. So at that point, I had considered for a split second just being like, okay, getting another roommate, but I'm like, no, it's so close to the end of the year, I'm not gonna do it, I'm not getting a third roommate. So cut to you know the last day of school. I had made it through my freshman year, and it was a good year. I had close to a 4.0 GPA, and I had had like a solid group of friends. Last day, we go out to dinner, I go out to dinner with some of those friends, and we come back, and it's about two in the morning, and there are a bunch of drunk freshmen in the lobby, and I'm two steps into the lobby, and I hear, you fucking bitch! And I'm like standing there, I'm like, no, this is not happening again. Nothing happened, what's going on? So I look to my friend Lauren with me, and, I'm, and you know, we look up, we see this blonde floating head through the crowd, and it's Amanda, and she's staring directly at me. And I'm like, Lauren, I'm, I'm not doing this. I need you to help me move my stuff into your room. And she's just still going off, like yelling, rambling, and she's following us up the two flights of steps. I'm not good with conflict, so I just didn't say a word. Um, so we're packing our things up, and I think like that silence had pissed her off more than anything that I could have said. I'm also, at the time, I'm thinking like, how is it possible that I have two bipolar roommates in the same year? How does that happen? So I'm still packing things up, and she looks at us, and she's like, here, let me help you. She reaches into one of the boxes, she grabs two glass photo frames, and she shatters them against the wall. Um, and at first I was like, oh no, but I looked up, and it was two frames that I had gotten for a secret Santa gift from like friends in the dorm room, and one of them said sisters, and the other one said like BFFs. So I wasn't too worried about it, but I had grabbed the photos, and I kept on packing up. And then she grabs the sheets and tears them off my bed, and she, from inside the dorm room, she heaves this mattress out into the hallway. And so at that point I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> I'm like, she's clearly looking for a fight. And Amanda was a rower in high school, so she was much stronger than me. I'm still packing, like trying to ignore her, and then I see her going for this humongous computer monitor on my desk. So at that point, I finally, I get up, and I stand in between her and the monitor, and I put my hand up, and she pushes me back. So I, you know, instinct, I just push her right back, and she shoves me back again. And then I remember I had my hand, like, balled up into a fist at my side, and I remember very clearly, like, everything that ran through my head at that moment. So first I was like, my first fight, I was like, I'm gonna punch her. And, then, and I was like, you know, I make it through my freshman year, and my last day I'm gonna get kicked out. And then I'm like, my parents are gonna be so pissed off. So I'm, and then I'm like, you know what, I'll let her swing first, it'll be self-defense, it'll be fine. So at that moment, I hear, it was fate, I hear this small voice from the door behind me, what's going on? And it, I turn around, it was our little blonde RA, Katie, and behind her is this huge security guard. So Amanda just ramps up again, she starts yelling. She's like, she's so insecure, she's so insecure, and that's all she kept saying. And I was so embarrassed, not only because everybody in the hallway had heard that, but because I had thought I had like finally turned things around, and people still saw this in me. So that was the one thing that had like, she had finally gotten to me. She could break anything she wanted to, but I, I was like tearing up, I tried not to let her see, but I was like shaking too. So my RA and Lauren had helped me move you know, the rest of my things into my room. The security guard is keeping Amanda busy while she's just ranting and yelling. And I was still confused about like what had happened. So my third roommate and I for the year had stayed in Lauren's room behind locked doors for the last night. That was the last night that anybody had seen Amanda because she didn't come back the next year. She left school. Um, cut to sophomore year, I'm going to class and her, Amanda's first roommate, Leah, like comes up to me while I'm walking to class and she's like, I, you know, I have to apologize, I'm so sorry. I, I wanted to tell you that Amanda had this drug addiction, she had a coke habit, but I, I just wanted to get the hell out of there so I didn't tell you. So, and I was like, it makes so much sense, like the emotional roller coaster, like the manic high and the manic low. And, you know, cut to a few years after graduation, Lauren had come to visit me in Philadelphia. And we were talking about that night. We were like, what made her so angry 
like, why was she always so mad at me? And so by that point, we had had Facebook. We'd also had a few drinks. So we look her up on Facebook and we send her a direct message. And it went something along the lines of, like, Amanda, why were you so mad that last year that you threw my mattress out of my room? And it was about two in the morning and she almost, she responded almost like right away. And all it said was, life's a journey, not a destination. So I read it and I'm like, she quoted Aerosmith, that's it. So, <laughs> but now I know it's Ralph Waldo Emerson, just like I know the difference between bipolar disorder and cocaine abuse. So, thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Staple Singers behind me now. On the spur of the moment, I just decided to throw this on in the end here because it's one of my very favorite songs ever, even though it's pretty not well known. But I just happened to read on the internet just now that it's also one of Prince's very favorite songs. So what the heck? It's the Stable Singers with City in the Sky. I'm now going to read a shit ton of places that we're coming next. April 27th, we're in Vancouver. April 28th, it is Seattle, Washington. April 30th, Portland, Oregon. Sunday, May 15th, Boston, Massachusetts. On the 20th of May, we are in Brooklyn again at the Bell House. That's the big state-themed show with... Janine Garofalo, and lots of special guests. May 21st, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We might be in Pittsburgh in June. We're definitely in Philly on June 17th. The theme is disgusted. We're still taking pitches for that. We are in St. Louis, Missouri on June 25th. We're still taking pitches for that. The theme is worried. July 8th, we're in San Francisco. The theme is resonant. We're still taking pitches. And for anyone who wants to pitch us from any of those cities I just mentioned or anywhere in the world, just go to risk-show.com slash submissions, and all you need to know is there. You can find out more about the storytelling training we do, the corporate workshops we teach, and the one-on-one training we do over Skype. Also, the online video courses that we have available. That is all at thestorystudio.org. There's plenty to find in our shop. You can support us at the Support Us page. There's the tables of contents for all the episodes and places where you can comment on your favorite stories at risk-show.com. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison, and we always want to hear from you. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. 
Hi, all. This is Kermit the Frog. Ah! Oh, mm. I've got a frog in my frog. <laughs>